I tell you, there is nothing like getting to preach after Linda Gibson sings. Because you just know everybody's already been ministered to, so even if you preach a dud, it's okay. <laughs> so, thank you, Linda. I've been ministered to but this morning, so I'm, I'm in a good place and ready to preach to you. I just wanted, to, on a quick note, to thank those of you who have been praying for the last few weeks for my back. I, I missed two Sundays ago uh, because I made some poor choices and, uh, and uh, have had to do the doctor thing and the steroid thing and the physical therapy thing. But uh, even more important than those have been your prayers, and I just thank you. I'm healed, I'm being healed, and I will be healed. And uh, I just thank God that I'm standing before you today. <laughs> that particular Sunday, I never know if I stood, I would stand again. So, uh, so uh, I just thank you for your prayers, and uh, I, really, I really do that humbly this morning. I was just amazed as last week I was in the back uh, running some video for the baptisms. How many of you came and said, I've been praying for you, I've been praying for you. And that just speaks to the, the wonderful nature of our church. So thank you so much. Uh, go ahead this morning, if you have your Bibles, and turn with me to the tiny book of Titus. Uh, if you haven't been to Titus in a while, it would be good to turn to Hebrews and then go backwards. Uh, probably just one page, uh, because Philemon is only going to probably take up one page in your Bible. And uh, unless you've got one of those glorious uh, study Bibles that go forever, uh, like Philemon is like eight pages because you have so many notes on good old Philemon and Onesimus. There is a tragedy being played out in the American church today, a tragedy that if not rectified will see the American church of Jesus Christ dissolve within a few generations. This tragedy is one in which you may be playing an active part. And most heinous, it is a tragedy that our accepted Protestant theology gives us room for. The tragedy is this. We as American Christians in many ways have and are presently reducing salvation to a general affinity toward Jesus marked by a loose association with a church. Did you catch that? If you didn't, I'll say it again. I, I heard a couple of yeps, and one person just went, no. <laughs> American Christians have and are presently, in many ways, reducing salvation to a general affinity towards Jesus, marked by a loose association with a church. And the result of such a view of salvation is that a mass of Christians in this country are abounding, who look, act, and think nothing like the Christ that they take their name from but who have soothed their souls by accepting grace through faith and saying that they have a church home, whether or not they attend or attend regularly. And I mentioned that our Protestant theology allows for such a weak view of salvation because we believe that salvation comes by grace through faith. This is true. It does come by grace through faith. It is not and never will be our good works that save us. They cannot... And they do not. All the former Catholics in the room are just ready to go now. Our salvation comes to us by a gift of God that was Christ substituting himself for us in his death and raising to life sinless so that we could claim his work for us. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are justified. Justification or justified is a fancy way of saying God has declared us right with him the moment we believe in Jesus. 
So you may be wondering, what's your problem? What's the tragedy? Where are you going with this? The tragedy is that American Christians often live their lives as if salvation only means that they achieve heaven. The problem with that thinking is that nowhere in the scriptures does it indicate Jesus came to create a bunch of individual heaven-bound hooligans. A bunch of people who could just laud the fact that they were going to make heaven, but look no different from the moment than they met him. Jesus came to create disciples who would imitate him in his struggle against sin and this sinful world. Christ did not come so that we could have good feelings toward him and a, and a loose connection to a church. He came to seek and to save that which was lost and to reassert his lordship over this earth. We often miss that part, that he came to be Christ the victor, which our Catholic friends have a real hold on. We missed it, that he came to reassert his lordship over the earth. Romans 10.9 says that salvation comes not only through belief, but also submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. One of the great Bible scholars of this generation that I'm familiar with is a man named William Mounts, who puts it this way, Can we put to death any theology that separates salvation from the demands of obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can we put to death any theology that separates salvation for, from the demands of obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? What are you saying, Pastor Matt? Are you saying that we are not saved and heading to heaven if we do not also have some set of rigorous standards by which we conduct ourselves that the church determines? No, I am not saying that. Let me be very clear, I'm not saying that. I just said you're justified before God the minute you believe. And I believe that. But what of a church who has reduced the definition of salvation to just achieving heaven? I don't believe that's saved. Saved from what? Obviously eternal damnation. But salvation begins at the moment of belief. Are you saved now? Or are you just heading to heaven as we turn today, as you have, to the tiny book of Titus, I offer us two alternatives. Join or remain in the church that says salvation is liking Jesus and having a church home. Do so knowing that that version of, of the church will be the demise of the church. Alternatively today, join or resolve to remain in the church that does not separate salvation from the Lordship of Christ. This church is the so-called Bride of Christ who awaits his return with anticipation. We're going to be reading from Titus chapter 2 this morning to get what I believe is a full view of salvation. Titus chapter 2. Now, if you would have asked me before I started studying in Titus this week, is Titus one of those books with no chapters? I would have said yes, because it's so small that I just figured, oh, that's one that has no chapters. But it does. Jude and, uh, and uh, Philemon have no chapters. Titus does. Three small chapters. Verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Three chock-full, powerful verses for us to think about this morning. Now, let's think about what this salvation teaches in verse 12. It teaches us to say, we're on our way to heaven, right? It teaches us to say, we are saved and on our way to heaven, correct? That's what it's teaching us. We're, we're going to heaven. Now, I'm going to heaven. You're going to heaven. Harold Holsterman is surely going to heaven, right? He's one day closer. We're, we're going to heaven. I'll see you there. I'm looking forward to it. There's some people I'd like to see there and some things I'd like to do. But it doesn't say first that we anticipate heaven. It's going to say that later, that we anticipate heaven. But before we go any further, let's go back to verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Let us not forget that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Thank you to our Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin. Thank you for bringing us from a place where we thought that we could somehow achieve our own salvation to a place where we recognized that if we could achieve our own salvation, Jesus wouldn't have come and died on the cross. Thank you to those gentlemen. Do you know that in the Greek, grace and gift are the same word? Charis. You could, you, could, you could go with either one of those words. And so if we were reading this today in a, in a different way, we could say, for the gift of God that brings salvation has appeared to everybody. When you see grace, you can read gift. It's a beautiful thing. It's handed to you. You do not buy a gift for yourself unless you're, unless you're weird, right? Unless you, bought, unless you bought into every commercial that begins with, you deserve this. Uh, you did not buy that gift for yourself. A gift is necessarily given to you by another person. If you buy your own gift, you call that an indulgence. You indulged. Okay? You cannot buy a gift for yourself. A gift must be given. I remember a message a, a, a months ago where Pastor Cindy was giving gifts. Gifts must be given and they must be received. The gift of salvation, the grace of salvation, the unmerited favor of salvation is a gift. It's just given. You can't buy it yourself. You, yeah, oh, oh dear, you can't give yourself an indulgence. For those of you who took church history one and two with me, you can't give yourself an indulgence. Christ has already indulged on your behalf, and he's given you a gift. The awesome other, other Greek word here, and, and I know sometimes it can be laborious when we pastors dive into the Greek and then make it seem as if your NIV translation is not sufficient. The NIV is a tremendous translation of the Word of God. Uh, and and I, I love how it says it's appeared to all men because in its simplest form, the Greek word here means appeared. But it comes from the Greek verb epiphano. What does that sound like? An epiphany. Think about that in terms of not just appeared, but the gift of God of salvation has become an epiphany to all men. It's there. You see Jesus and you go, whoa, that's what's missing. That's the aspect of my life that I've been searching for all this time. Let's never get away from that moment, whether it happened to you when you were a child, whether it happened to you a year ago, whether it happened to you 50 years ago. Never forget that moment of the epiphany. 
when you went, wow, Christ is what I was looking for. Christ is what I need. The salvation that, that has, it has been offered to me by Jesus Christ is exactly what I've been looking for my whole life. The epiphany of salvation. Now you might say, by saying all of these things about the gift and the grace, Pastor Matt, you're, you're really refuting your own argument about salvation. Didn't you just say that salvation wasn't all about achieving heaven? And I say, no, I have not refuted my argument because you are assuming that salvation begins at death. If, if you disagree with me up until this point, you are assuming that salvation begins at death. Salvation begins, as we mentioned in the introduction, at belief. Being saved begins at belief, at conversion, if you will, at, at, at that moment. The, the sinner's prayer for so many of us, that's when salvation begins. Not a death. Not a death. What does salvation teach us, according to verse 12? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Did you notice that your NIV, if you've got the 1984 version, there is now like a 2011 version. It's ruined my life that there is a 2011. Because the 1984 version of the NIV is going to be what the King James version is to many of you. It's going to become the sacred cow in my life, all right? Because that is how I have studied the Scriptures. That is how I know to memorize the Scriptures. The 2011 version is straight from the devil. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, that's how you KGV people thought about the NIV, right? Right? And so I still read out of the 84 version. Our Scriptures are still in the 84 version. So if you've got the 84 version sitting in there, the, the really holy version of the Bible, uh, you you are going to see that no is in parentheses. To say no to ungodliness. This is an aorist participle for those of you who love the English language. Meaning, you have and are continuing to say no. Now, we don't use this word in the Protestant church a lot, but the, the word that can really be translated out of the Greek here is you have and will be renouncing ungodliness. It's been renounced. Do you remember Michael Corleone renouncing all those things as he's having everybody wiped out at the end of The Godfather? I renounce them. Right? All the evils of the enemy. Am I not to have seen The Godfather? I'm sorry. I've referenced a violent, violent movie that you all saw and are going to judge me now for seeing, forgive me. <laughs> forgive me. All right, well, we will not be using any more Godfather references from the pulpit here at VLC. All right, going to get a memo about that this week, an angry email from one of the Baptists who attend here. All right. All right. Where's the Methodist? You send me a good email. All right. Uh, it causes us to say no, to renounce, to say no forever. Uh, that's, that's the aspect of baptism that, that I love so much. When you go down into the water, you had said yes to the world. When you come up out of the water, you say no. I renounce ungodliness in this moment. I renounce the way that I once believed, the way I once was. This term ungodliness was used throughout the Greek world at this time. For those of you who are wondering, why do you keep talking about the Greek? The New Testament was written in Greek. 
Why do you keep referencing the Greek? In the Greek world, this term ungodliness, asebea, was used from, by Plato, by Aristophanes, by Plutus, by Xenophon, and it had a very clear meaning to a Greek audience. And the idea was this. Ungodliness refers to anything that your religion, your religion, finds morally or ethically objectionable. So, you know, we see ungodliness and we can have all types of ideas in our mind, right? All types of, what's ungodly to you? Anything that your church says, if you will, is ungodly. Anything that the church says is unethical or unmoral, that's ungodliness. And so if you submit yourself to a Christian community, if you submit yourself to the authority of Victory Life Church, in theory... In theory, what we would agree is ungodly as leadership and as a community is ungodly. Does that make sense? So this Asebea, very very clearly, used in the Greek by many of the Greek writers back at that time, has a clear connotation. And it wasn't just for Christianity. Paul was writing to the island of Crete, a Greek island. It, it was any religion. Whatever your religion said is good, moral, ethic, ethical, right, that would be... Uh, eusebea, or godly, rather than asebea, ungodly. Is that clear? That's a tough concept to try to get across uh, in the morning, I guess. So, we are talking about that which makes us alike in our thinking, in our morals, in our ethics. It causes us to say no that that which is, to that which is outside of our church's beliefs, ethics and morals, that which our religion finds objectionable, and to include ourselves under the heading of that religious community which we attend. There's not room for nonconformity. That's one of the hardest things in the church, because what happens? There are times when someone's not conforming to the group standard or the group moral. And what do you do in those situations? One of two things happen, and, and it necessarily happens. And it gives Christians a bad rap, but this is, this is in any kind of, of group that would claim morals from God. If you fit into the morality and ethics of the group, and you try to remain in the morality and the ethics of the group, you remain in the group. Doesn't that just make sense? And if you choose to step outside of the bounds of the morality and ethics of the group, and you say that I am not submitting to the morality and ethics of the group, necessarily you will eventually leave that group, or that group will eventually say to you, oh, please leave. Right? And the world looks at that and goes, you hateful Christians. Any club that you join has club rules, right? And if you violate the club rules, you're out. Well, I hate to put it this way, but we are the Jesus Club. We have group rules. And it's what binds us together. And because we're graceful, loving people, we don't write down every single one so that we can make it a law unto ourselves. And then look and say, ah, you have violated uh, bylaw 23B-A, and so you are out. We don't do that. Not because, because for the very nature that we aren't intolerant, we're full of grace. But if you remain in a place of ungodliness that is objectionable to the group, you will either begin to feel like, I don't belong there anymore. Right! You don't. Naturally. You chose to not belong there anymore. Does that make sense? 
And then if you bring your life back to godliness or the morality and ethics that the group agrees with, guess what the group does? Oh, we love you. We do a good Christian hug. We're so glad that you have, you know, we are so glad that, you, that you've come to this place. And I've had it both ways. I, you know, I'm the, I'm the young adult minister. I minister to people between 18 and 30. I've had it both ways. I've had people who have stepped outside of godliness. And I talk to them, and I go to talk to them, and I say, hey, what's going on here? And they say, oh, why are you talking to me about this? I didn't know you knew. And, right? None of you nod. Some of it was you, right? Why, why are you talking to me about this? And, oh. And what ends up happening is either one of two things. Either one, they go, I was out of line. I need to repent. I know that's not right. I've already felt convicted about it. You coming to me today has helped in that process. Or they look at me and go, it's none of your business. Or they look at me and go, I don't see why that has anything to do with you. That's my choice. And after that, I go, "Uh, I thought I was a pastor here. I thought I represented the morals, ethics of the group. Apparently I don't. But guess what? I'm still here. Which means that in theory, I still represent the morals and ethics of the group. Until such time as the elders go, you're out, you know? You no longer represent the morals and ethics of the group, you jerk. Uh, Until that time... I represent the morals and ethics of us. Pastor Cindy does. Jeremiah does. AJ does. All of us do. The elders do. The trustees do. And when you don't, somebody should go, Hey, what are you doing? And you should not go, Jerk. Meanie. Judgmental. Look at the plank in your own eye. Oh, you should go, wow, is any of this true? I, I, I would love to live like Jesus would have me live, which is to ask the question, is any of this true? And do I need to repent and come back to a place of godliness? I didn't know I was going to spend this much time on this this morning, but I, I just feel like, come on now. We're not intolerant. We're grace-filled and graceful. You want to come back and say, I was an idiot. We'll be like, we are too. Come on in. You know? That, that's the grace of God. <laughs> yeah, don't quote me on that. The grace of God is, I was an idiot. We are too. Come on. But <laughs> that, <laughs> I will not be putting that in a book someday. Uh, but, the, but really, it's grace. We want to be about grace. But if you find yourself outside the morals and ethics of the group, somebody's going to eventually call you on it, and eventually you're either going to be angry, bitter, and gone, or you're going to say, hey, if I'm part of that church, that's what they believe. This is where I need to come under and get in line with. Okay? So, uh, we also have this word, worldly passions. I don't think we need to define those forever. You guys know what worldly passions are. Greed, immorality, selfish ambition, vain conceit, too much leisure, slander, booze, whatever. You know? Whatever would take you and make you somebody that is not in in the mind of Christ and make you somebody else. To make work more important than God. To engage in things outside of marriage in a sexual fashion. 
to step on people in order to gain position in this life, to be mean to people because of your vain conceit, to talk nasty about people because of your anger, or for all of us to take things into our mouths that medicate us rather than be medicated by the Word of God. These are all the worldly passions that we can succumb to. We were supposed to renounce them. I renounce them. I say no to them, and I am saying no to them. And in its place, Paul offers us self-control, just or upright as it's translated in the NIV, just and godly lives, eusebia, rather than asebea. He wants to offer us the expectation on the other side that we live a life of self-control, that we live a life that is just, or in, in this particular instance in the NIV, upright, meaning that we treat others right, and godly, meaning we do that which is moral and ethical. And if you look at those three categories, you look at them and say, say self-control is not sinning against me or my body. Isn't it? Self-control is not sinning against me or my body. Being just is not sinning against the people around me. And being godly is to not sin against God. I think that covers all the bases, don't you? Interestingly enough, these are three of the four tenets of Stoicism. I mean, Paul was reading, writing to a Greek audience, and he was using such interesting terms as asebea and eusebea. Why was he using these particular terms? Because he wants to separate the Christian church from the world. He also uses the phrase at the end of verse 13, great God and Savior. Great God and Savior was often a term that was left for Greek and Roman uh, rulers, for kings. Those who had deified themselves were called uh, the great God and Savior. And so he's using a Greek term to describe Jesus. Why would he do such a thing? Because he's about to describe before that in verse 13 the reason that we actually have hope for salvation in Jesus. Let's go ahead and read 12 through 13 now. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright and godly lives in this present age. And here we go, heaven-bound folks, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What gives us the oomph? To live these godly, moral lives, shunning the passions of the world, that one day Christ wins. He comes back and He returns and He makes right everything that is wrong. That's exciting. And so, even the instruments are rejoicing with this point. Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, He's coming back, He's returning. The Roman emperors and the Ptolemy emperors and the Seleucid emperors who called themselves great God and Savior are dead and they're staying dead. Jesus is not dead. He is returning for His church. And that should be an impetus for us to go, hey, if He wins in the end, I'd like to be on His side. I'd like to live for Him rather than live for this world that is passing away, dying, and ruining everybody's life as it is. What do we need saved from this world? Why am I dabbling in the world if I'm trying to be saved from this world? That makes no sense. If I am saved, I am saved for the one who will take this world and bring it under the subjection once more to the Father, God. And that's Jesus Christ. That's exciting. We should live in that reality. We should talk more about the return of Christ. We should scare some Christians into living like Christ because He's returning. We should not be scared of that idea. 
Christ is returning. How do you want to be found? Jesus was interested in scaring some Christians into it. Did you ever read Matthew 25? Three parables. The ten versions. The parable versions. Virgins. I know it's in America it's tough to say virgin anymore. Virgin. The ten virgins. Talents. Okay, and then finally the sheep and the goats, all meant to tell the church, be ready when I return, be pure, be right, I'm coming back. We should be excited about this. I was speaking to a gentleman in the church the other night, and, and while we were speaking, I was sitting on a couch, and this gentleman was actually sitting on the floor on his knees. And when the conversation about Christ's return began, this gentleman and I were about eight feet apart. And as we're talking about how awesome it will be when Christ returns and makes all things new and makes this earth right, this guy starts creeping towards me on his knees. He's getting excited. And we're talking about everything that God's going to do and how he's going to make things right and how the world will be how it was supposed to be and how awesome it's going to be for us when Jesus returns and he's getting closer and closer and closer on his knees. He's literally crawling across the living room towards me. He's so excited to be talking with the brother in Christ about the return of Christ to the point where we get to the end of the conversation and I tell you there is not 18 inches between me and this brother in Christ. He is so excited and I'm so excited and I didn't even move. He came six and one half feet towards me. He was so excited. I don't even think he knew he did it. And I thought that's the type of excitement that causes us to say no to ungodliness and say no to worldly passions and live for Jesus. That's the type of excitement we should have when we talk about Christ's return. And you have it. I see it. Every time we have a verse in one of those nine verse songs that talks about the return of Christ, victory life can't get through without... That's great! You should be excited, but it should excite you to the point that you actually say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Not just get excited for that time when, oh, this is just going to be over. This life is just going to be over. I can't wait for Jesus to return. Come on. Christ puts you on the... My ties on me. Christ puts you on this earth to bring Him glory. So if you still draw breath, there's still some glory to bring Him. Still some glory to bring Him. Don't be waiting for the end. Wait for the next minute. Live for Him. Say no to worldly passions and to ungodliness. Say yes to self-control. Taking care of yourself and doing what's right in terms of your own body and honoring God. Honor God by treating others justly and then honor God by just honoring God. If he says no, say no. If he says yes, say yes. Why did Christ give himself? Verse 14. Why did he die on the cross? This is, oh, I love these three verses. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good? It doesn't say who gave himself for us that we all might achieve heaven. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Redeem means to buy back. He came to buy us back from the wicked, stupid, iniquitous way in which we were living. Not just the wickedness that would cause our eternal damnation. Yes, he, 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 he came to redeem us from the wickedness that would cause our eternal damnation. But he also came to save us from the wickedness that would cause the ruin and waste of our earthly lives. 
He came to redeem us from wasting our lives, for ruining our lives. He came to buy back that which rightfully belongs to Him, and that's His people, to live lives that are full of meaning, full of purpose, and full of God. He came to buy your life back. Not just for heaven, but for now. It says He came to purify for Himself a people that are His. Christ died to make you clean now. There is a pervading lie in the church that says, do what you will, God's grace abounds. His grace is enough, but His grace teaches us to live lives of purity. That is the process of salvation. There you did it! You heretic! You said process! You said process of salvation. I don't mean the process of getting into heaven. Yeah, I know. Did, did you catch it? I didn't say there was a process to getting into heaven. The process is belief in Jesus Christ, uh, admitting that He's Lord. That's the process for heaven. The process for salvation is quite different. Salvation is being redeemed from all wickedness and living lives of purity. That's salvation. I wondered how David could talk about God being his rock and salvation when he didn't have a picture of Jesus. He must have meant for his present life as well as the life to come. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says the prophets have looked so intently into this. They just didn't quite know how God was going to do this. They were looking for Jesus. They were looking for Jesus. But in the meantime, the prophets were going to live pure. And they were going to say no to wickedness. So I ask you, as I asked you in the open, what choice will you make? Some of you are saying to that choice of whether or not I'm just going to be affiliated to a church and heaven bound, or I'm going to live a life that pursues purity and rightness and obedience. Some of you are saying, I made that choice long ago, Matt. I'm sitting here. What do you want from me? I want you to make that choice again today. And I want you to make that choice again tomorrow and Tuesday, and Wednesday. I told this to the young adults Thursday night in a similar type of message. You have not yet arrived in making this choice. This is a daily choice. Are you saved in terms of, are you saved going to heaven? Yes. Are you pursuing salvation? Make that choice every day. Make that choice every day. For so many of us, our arrangement with God has become like a bad marriage. You know a bad marriage when you see one? They have the arrangement. They have arranged things. There's no love there. They just have determined we're going to stay together, but we have an arrangement so we don't annoy each other too much. And you do what you do, and I do what I do, and there's some things that we do together to put a good face on, but the love is not quite there anymore because we've chosen not to keep loving one another. We're going to just have our arrangement. Jesus says he's returning for the bride of Christ. And I think he wants a love relationship. I don't think he wants an arrangement with you. I don't think Jesus wants an arrangement with you. Jesus, you can touch these portions of my life, but you can't touch these. Yes, we'll be seen together on Sunday mornings two times a month, but for the rest of the time, no, I don't think so. Jesus doesn't want an arrangement with you. He came to redeem you from all wickedness and to purify you in this life. That's salvation. Heaven awaits, but that's salvation. 
He came to save you. What do you want? A bad marriage or to be the bride of Christ? God wants you to make that choice again today. Even if you think you arrived 30 years ago, guess what? You arrived, but the destination was not what you thought it was. You've got to keep going. Let's pray.